All right, if you will, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 are where we're coming to this morning. And if you're uh, visiting, there are sermon notes in the bulletin. And uh, as we come back to our study of 1 Corinthians after two great blessings, whether it was Rob Provost or then Professor Doug Bookman, what a great opportunity for us over the past two weeks to be enriched by those two godly men and their teachings. We come back now to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we come to verses, if you recall a couple weeks ago, that I said are some of my favorite in all the Bible. Verses 18 and 19, let's read chapter 1. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will I will set aside. If you have your sermon notes, you see the big picture. This is about why being clever with the gospel is wrong. Being clever, being manipulative. The context of our study is that the Apostle Paul has recognized the church is divided. The church is dealing with division. If you go back to verse 12, he says, some people are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, and of I of Christ. And then he responds, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no, no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. What do you mean cleverness? Wisdom, human wisdom, human manipulation. And we're going to see this is what caused the division, but it's going to be an issue that's so important that not only does chapter 1 continue to build upon explaining why you can't do this, but chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 does as well. This is one of the most important sections, I think, in all of Scripture, when we understand the gospel, we talk about gospel, that we're talking about the good news, the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sin debt that we owed God, and that through his death, through what he paid for us, we can have eternal life. It's a message that when we repent and we turn and we come, as we just sang, to the cross, that we too could have eternal life. And verses 18 and 19 here begin to explain why you can't be manipulative with it, the gospel. You see the word in verse 18, for the word, for, it begins to explain. And as we go into this, these two verses, these are verses that seem real easy to just jump over, but it's a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 14, that to me is a quote that has so much power to it that this morning I'm going to have a slideshow. I'm going to take a little more time with it because I truly believe it's so powerful. I, um, I think that to really grasp this, you need to understand the Old Testament. And I know that, that, that a lot of times people don't have a good feel for the Old Testament. They have their arms around the Old Testament And I wrote this, this passage teaches us about the gospel. To understand it fully, you need to understand the Old Testament and how God used Isaiah and the Assyrians and the threat of war and death to put people to the test. And when you understand that, you will understand the gospel. 
I said, frankly, I'm amazed that books are not written on these two verses. I truly believe that. And you'll understand why today. And I think as I went through my studies and as I watched as different commentaries commented on this, I think a lot of people skim over this because I really think even some Bible teachers don't understand the Old Testament. And they don't understand Israel. And I want you to understand that today, this quote, if you look at verse 19 where it says, for it is written, it is written, it's Isaiah that wrote this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. That's a quote of, from Isaiah, but he's quoting God and what God wants to do. And God here is, is dealing with a message to Israel that has great profound impact for the gospel and it's setting people straight about how God works and how God's power works. And I want us to always remember, like, we look back and we say, oh, man, I really like the book of Isaiah. 66 books, chapter 53 goes into the great, I mean, 66 chapters. Um, chapter 53 goes into the um, suffering of Christ and how we understand the gospel probably far better in the Old Testament from that passage than any other Old Testament passage. But you have to remember this. When Isaiah gives his message and the truths that verse 19 hold, and I think verse 19 is so much at the heart of Isaiah's message, that it gets him killed. Isaiah is hated because of this message. Isaiah, church, not church, I say history has it that, that Isaiah is killed by King Manasseh by having him sawn in two. The book of Hebrews alludes to someone being sawn the history of Israel is that Isaiah was the one, and he sawed him in two with a wooden saw. Why would you use a wooden saw? Because it takes longer to kill. And, you know, I wouldn't even mention it, but there was a really graphic TV show this week that showed some killing, and it just, like, made me sick, and I thought to myself, how could people do something like this to someone else, and even for entertainment purposes? And then I come to this passage and I'm reminded how much Isaiah was hated because of what he said. And you look at verse 19, you say, what do you mean? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Well, today we're going to understand this in context and why it's so powerful, why Isaiah was hated for what he did. And I, I want us to understand as we go into this, as we come to understand Isaiah chapter 29 and chapter 30, so someone get the lights, and, and uh, hopefully we'll get through this. Presentation is called The Gospel, Destroying Man's Wisdom. It's a background study. So this is what we're going to get into. To understand the gospel, sadly, you must understand war. And understanding war in this study will help you not only understand the gospel, but Christmas as well. Kind of interesting, because we're coming up to the holidays. And... Uh, Here's a picture from a movie that will run repeatedly through the Christmas season, the Christmas story. The true meaning of Christmas is not tied to a toy, but is rooted in a war story. And I don't think a lot of times you catch that, that Christmas is rooted in war. All right? So war is no joke, and it brings vicious death. We know this. Deep down, we all fear war. So I found this picture it's not supposed to be American soldiers or any other soldier, national soldiers. It's just to remind us something of what we all know. We all would hate to really be in war. An army can be terrifying. I got this from a movie that I saw many, many years ago. They just 
the movie Braveheart, and I just remember there was a scene where this, these armies are pitted against one another. I should have showed both of them, but it was just, I put myself, not in an entertainment standpoint, but thinking to myself, oh my goodness, if I lived in this day um, when an army like this was coming at me, how horrific that would be. How horrific that would be. So here, pictures of German soldiers in World War II, whether it's German, whether it's American, I just wanted to, again, remind us of the imposing thought of what war brings. It gives us reason to fear. And so we come to the year 740 B.C. When you think of the prophet Isaiah, it, I have a, around 740, let's give it to about 680. So 40, 60 years, Isaiah is a prophet to Israel. And Isaiah is a prophet that we believe, we piece it together, might have come from a, a more prominent family in Jerusalem. And he's coming to a time when we know Israel is in a very bad situation. They've split. It's Israel and Judah. And here's a picture of the map of the Middle East. Israel is down here. Here's Jerusalem. And You've got Syria with Damascus, okay, which in the passages that we're going to study, it's, it's an area sometimes called Aram, okay? And at this time, the Assyrian Empire, and I know you can't see the difference, but it's, it's growing and it's impacting, it's having an impact upon Egypt. It's very, they're very powerful. And when we went through our studies over the past, oh, past year, we talked a lot about the Assyrian army and, and how scary they were and how they impaled people and how they were just a very large force. And as we talk about this morning, I believe in Carl's prayer, he even mentioned about the freeing of Mosul. Mosul is Nineveh. So when you hear that in the news today, I mean, you have the ruins of Nineveh and then Mosul is like right across the street where that, that is um, taking place today. And so eventually, the Babylonian Empire is going to come, and uh, they're going to stretch out. We call it the Neo-Babylonian Empire. They're going to they're gonna come on the scene, too. So it's out of this area that the two major empires, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, become forces. But what you have to recognize is the idea of being surrounded. Israel has Egypt down here, and they've got Assyria, and then Babylon, Babylon is growing as a power during this time, Okay. So Israel is divided, and they're weak at this time. The northern kingdom is Israel, and sometimes called Ephraim, and the southern kingdom is called Judah, and sometimes represents all of Israel. And I, I point this out because this morning, I wanted to do something for you all. I wanted to put some of these scriptures up here. I, I thought about having you turn a bunch of pages, and I thought to myself, no, let's not have people get lost. So I'm going to end up putting some more scriptures than I usually do up here, just so that everybody stays on the same page. But I thought the reason I wanted to point out the Ephraim reference is because if you would take the time, if you go back and you read Isaiah, sometimes you're going to see Israel or the northern kingdom referenced as Ephraim. And I'm hoping that's in the back of your mind so that you would understand the flow of how and why God um, who God is talking to at that time. So, very important that we understand Israel's divided. 
Um, they've been divided ever since um, Solomon has died. His, his sons come on the scene, and then they, 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 he was real bad. And the, the Israel said, we don't care. the north part said, we don't care for you. And so they started to have their own set of kings. And remember, if you study the books of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, then you recognize every king in the north is bad. There's never a king that's godly. Every, Judah will have some good kings, but when we come to this time, they, they have a bad king, and they have a king, we'll see, named Ahaz. So as we go through this period, especially this time, the Assyrian army was vicious and came against Israel and Judah very hard. Assyria is coming against the north, they're coming against the south. This is a depiction I found, um, obviously they didn't have cameras back then, but this is a depiction, somebody drew this, of the attack of Assyria upon Jerusalem in 701. And that is, again, I'll just take a side note, given in Isaiah chapter 36 through 38, 39, that you can go back and read. It's one of the greatest stories in all the Bible. And so they, as we remember, were very, 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 has a lot of emphasis, vicious because they wanted to control the world. And so here's the question. How would you defend yourself, your family, your land, against a vicious enemy like the Assyrian army? If you were surrounded, you know, if all of a sudden we heard that we were going to be attacked by the Assyrians, would you make deals to fight with others like Egypt or Aram, Damascus, you know? Would you run from or surrender to Assyria? Would you fight on your own, build a bigger army, or just pray and trust God if he so promised? And so, you know, you got these promises. God says, I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll be the guardian over you. What would you do? And so, here's what we see. Sadly, both Israel and Judah chose sinful ways to defend themselves. For God had said to Israel regarding surrounding nations in the second part of Deuteronomy 7-2. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy, and this is like where I would take you back if we were turning Bible pages, but you can ask me for the slideshow. I would give it, I'll give it to you. But I'm asking that you remember the book of Deuteronomy is Israel's about to go back into, go into the land. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And God is telling the people as they're going in, they're having these con conquests, you are to make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. They were never to make alliances. They were never to make agreements with the surrounding nations. They were to trust God. So when I told you, what would you do? Would you make a deal with Aram? Would you make a deal with Egypt? Would you, what would you do? Well, there's, it was not wrong for them to fight, but they were not to go out and make covenants with the surrounding nations. Under pressure, Israel and Judah chose the human wisdom of making alliances with the nations they can see. Why did I put this word here? It's because this is what they see. They don't go by faith. If, if you are under this pressure, you see that you can go to Damascus and ask for help. You can go to Egypt and ask for help. But that's not what God wants them to do. They are not to go based upon what they see. So this is what we know, and this is where it kind of gets interesting. And again, if you take the time and you read these passages, 
especially in 2 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 17, you'll see how these alliances play up, play up. And then it ties into the book of Isaiah. And I know this gets, can be really cumbersome, but look, I have four points here. Every one of these are alliances that play incredible, significant, um, have significant impact in understanding the Old Testament. The first one is Israel makes an alliance with the Arameans in 2 Kings. All right? That is so powerful that you don't understand how significant. Because you, you read this little verse, you think, well, it's no big deal. Watch, we'll see how that plays out. At the same time, Judah's king Ahaz decides to make an alliance with Assyria in 2 Kings 16.7. So basically what happens is that you, have, you have the southern kingdom saying, look, we're divided from the north. The north is feeling the pressure. They're making a deal with the Arameans. And, and they are going to fight against Assyria. And they're also going to fight against us. We know that. So what we're going to do, if we're king, I'm King Ahaz, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the Assyrian king to be on my side too. Then around 724, Israel's next king, the last one, Hosea, makes an alliance with Egypt in 2 Kings 17.4. So what's going to happen is, I'm going to tell you a little bit what happens with this alliance but it allows for um, Israel then to say, wait, we're going to go out and we're going to make an alliance. Um, we're going to make another alliance with Egypt. Okay? So they've already made one with the Arameans, and then they're going to make one with Egypt within the south. So this is like for the north, and this is for the south. But then around 701 BC, Judah's next king, Hezekiah, makes an alliance with Egypt too. And that's alluded to in 2 Kings 8.21 and Isaiah 30. And that will be the key for the 1 Corinthians passage. So here's the account of Israel's alliance in 733 BC with Aaron, which was used against Judah. And this is where Christmas comes in. Say Christmas? How does this all tie in with Christmas? Well, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. The bold is my emphasis. To wage war against it, but could not conquer it. And the thought was that the northern kingdom, Israel, has said, we're, under, we're going to attack Assyria, so we're going to make a deal with Aram, but we don't like King Ahaz because he, he's not going to help us. Maybe we can go get him, perhaps kill him, and then we would end up having Judah with our own king, or I would be the king if it was um, Pekah, and we would end up all uniting to fight Assyria. So what would you do? You're the king in the south. When it was reported to the house of David, this is the very next verse, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, and Ephraim is Israel, the northern part. Remember I told you that. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. There's a book, <laughs> I just found that a great title, The Great Fear. And he, great fear. Because there's an army coming against you. You're in the south. You have this army coming against you. 
and it looks like you're going to lose. Though I, through Isaiah, God tells the king of Judah, hey, it'll be okay. Trust me. To trust him and to assure the king, God says, ask me a sign. Ask me a sign. But the king of Judah says this, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So what you have here is the army is coming. Isaiah comes into the king and says, listen, I know that you guys are terrified. You're shaking. This is a scary time. But everything's going to be okay. Hey, Isaiah says to the king, just to give you some more comfort, just ask anything. Maybe that it rains tomorrow. Maybe that there's a, the, 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 the sun doesn't move tomorrow. Just something so that you guys don't have to freak out. And you can trust me. But the king says, no, I'm not going to ask anything. Well, maybe because the king really trusts God. But the refusal is not because the king trusts God. No, it's because the king of the south has already gone to Assyria. Remember I told you that's why those alliances. He's already gone to Assyria for help, and God knows it. So then he says, listen, this is what God says through Isaiah. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and she will give his, will call his name Emmanuel. Like, what? What's this all about? What, you know, wait, isn't this the passage in Matthew 1, the Christmas passage? Why does this all, how does this all tie in? Now, but God gives the above Christmas message because Judah had a deal with Assyria. Judah doesn't, Judah's thinking, okay, this is scary, it's hard, but at least we're going to have the Assyrians come through and help us. And we're not really trusting God. So what happened to Israel and Judah during this time? So, okay, you've got Israel coming against the southern people. And the southern people are saying, we're going to get Assyria. So from 733 to 605, every alliance fails to help them. Everything they planned becomes an epic fail. This is what happened to the north. They get wiped out and become the ten lost tribes of Israel. So from 733 to 722, God has Assyria. Remember that south has made its deal with Judah. And so Assyria wipes out Israel. That's 2 Kings 17. In essence, both King Pekah and Hosea um, lose big time as Assyria wins battles and then fully captures Israel. Now I know that I give you guys dates all the time and sometimes it gets too cumbersome, but I'm always telling you, if you can remember 722, 2 Kings 17, where God gives this commentary on how Israel was in total sin and never trusted him, and finally Assyria is allowed to wipe them out. But over this 11-year period, the battles are taking place and God allows this king to be killed and then the subsequent king, subsequent king to also lose out too. But it's during this time, and, and I thought this would be just a fun fact, that it's during this time, and it takes 65 years, Assyria brings in foreigners to intermarry with the survivors. This starts a group of people called the Samaritans. And, and so, thus fulfilling God's promise that the two warring nations would be, would be gone before the virgin gave birth. Remember the Isaiah passage where I said, um, 
a virgin will be with child? Well, listen, this is like a subsequent verse. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So you go back and you read this, and what I want you to understand is that God says, listen, King Ahaz in the south, trust me, trust me. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not even going to ask for anything. God says, you big liar. I know that you are a snot and that you deserve judgment, but I'm going to give grace. I'm going to give, I'm going to give the entire nation a sign. A virgin is going to be born with a child. But even just to even bring you even greater comfort, I want you to know that that in a very short time, a very short time, all of Israel is going to be gone, the northern ten tribes, and that's where we get the ten lost tribes of Israel. So what the Assyrians do is they bring in people from all over the world and force them to intermarry with the Jews, and that's how we end up with the Samaritans, a people that really aren't Jewish, they're half-breeds, okay? What happens to the south? They're given time to repent, God gives them another, like, 120 years. Assyria does help them by defeating Israel and Aram, but the alliance with Assyria turns on them, and yet God miraculously delivers Judah in 701 B.C. This is the story of Hezekiah and how God works through the king Hezekiah and how 185,000 Assyrians die overnight. And God says, look, you needed to trust me. And I'm trying to get you to trust me. But remember, at the same time, Isaiah is telling the people, it's not just for war, it's for you to stop sinning, stop being materialistic, stop being sexually immoral, stop being manipulative in business with people. But Judah doesn't want to do that. And yet God's grace, it's an incredible story of God's grace. Sometimes we think God is just like, one time you sin, I'm going to smash you. But you think about the reality. You go back to the when Isaiah is told, make a sign, around 733 B.C. And now we're like some 30 years later, and God allows Judah to be delivered through Hezekiah. And it's all part of God saying, will you please see that I'm there for you? The secret alliance Hezekiah made with Egypt fails as Egypt is defeated by Assyria in 671 B.C. And you go back to Isaiah 20, and it's prophesied. Yet Judah never repents and fully trusts in God. So God sends Babylon, as promised in Isaiah 39, 5-8, to capture Judah in 605 B.C. This is recorded in 2 Kings 24 and 25, and this is when Daniel is taken captive. Okay. For Judah, this is what I'm trying to get you to see. It seemed logical to get the Assyrian help and then the Egyptian help, but it was not showing faith in God. So here's what God said in Isaiah 30. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. God destroys these plans. Egypt will crumble don't trust them. But listen, everything in my mind tells me I see the Assyrians coming. I see myself surrounded. My goodness, God, why shouldn't I go to the Egyptians? Because God says, trust me. God curses the plan. 
Isaiah 30, verse 3. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter and the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. You want to continue to make these alliances and not trust me? I will shatter them. And I found this old picture. I think this is a king, a Pharaoh that they think was during the, during the um, Exodus. I don't know if it's true or not, but I just like the picture. I don't know if it's the right Pharaoh. He says, now he's dead, and he says, okay, now I'll let him go. <laughs> That's a good joke, okay? God curses the plan. God won't let it work. God sent, God sends Assyria to go smash Egypt, and that was in 671 BC. You cannot hide from God what you are trusting in. So in Isaiah, that passage from Isaiah 29 and 30 was God is dealing with Judah. He says, therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wonderfully marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us, and who, know, who, who knows us? Don't miss it. This is the passage quoted in 1 Corinthians. And you say, what do you mean, God's secret plans? Is this like somebody looking at porn on the internet? Is this somebody doing some corrupt business deals? No, these are people who are making what everybody here would justify as reasonable plans to protect themselves. God is saying, I see that you think it's the best thing in the world to go to Egypt and trust in yourself, but it's a secret, dark plan, and it's corrupt. Trusting Egypt sounded like a good plan. It seemed wise in human logic, but God caused it to fail. And here's Isaiah 20. So the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. They will be dismayed and ashamed. So the inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Like, what he wants them to say is like, what in the world? We trusted in the wrong thing. Why did Judah's plan fail? Here's Spock, for those of you who like Star Trek. Judah's used, Judah used human logic based upon what they saw. Powerful Assyrian Egypt over a trust in God's promise to protect them. This is sin. It is failed logic. You can't read it. It says your logic is seriously flawed. Okay? How does this, though, relate to the gospel? The Corinthian church is divided because some want Paul, some want Apollos, some want Cephas, some want to have no one but to be, just be of Christ. Remember, we're of Christ. As we will see, they are using human wisdom in presenting the gospel. Why did the church at Corinth do this? Because the enemy is powerful. Now, what I want you to understand is, now let's put this at the church at Corinth. And there's false religions all around. Jesus said many false prophets will rise up. And, you know, these are pictures of today. But they, they had all those false churches. Remember, we did our background study on, on the Corinth. And then we know from the church letters to First and Second Corinthians, sin has its grip on people. Pride, greed, lust, envy. All right? Like a vicious army, it seems logical to get help with the gospel church work. A vicious army is hard to fight. We can understand. If we saw an army coming over the hills from Canada or coming up from the south from Mexico, we would be terrified. And so the church looks and says a sinful world is hard to fight too. I just got this picture of demons and things like that. So here's the thing. The enemy is powerful in Corinth. Remember, 
the what happens here stays here attitude thus the overwhelming amount of sin seems too much to wage war like if we walked through las vegas and said hey let's plant a church in the center of las vegas and let's have everybody turn and love us well we would think well it's overwhelming it's not going to work and that's what the church at corinth is doing remember to corinthianize means to act like a corinthian it's a wayward city it's a corrupt city but they're going to battle the churches and they're saying it just isn't working if we could just get a better speaker if we could just change the gospel so what they end up doing it frustrates the church that few find the narrow way so we incorrectly think we have to help god out because here's two pictures i love this this is a a famous picture of people going over uh going over hell into heaven it's a narrow way and then here you know you majority of people go through the broadway and i wish this was a little bit narrow but one person's going this way so you think to yourself even on this there's only a few people we've got to get more like why isn't our church this morning even packed out it should be packed out we've got to do something maybe if we don't talk about sin maybe if we don't talk about the cross maybe if we don't do anything that's offensive to people we'll get more people on this road so because our enemies are so powerful we incorrectly think we have to change the gospel and how we present it because there's no hope for any of us this is a picture we used a couple months ago there it seems like our enemies are so powerful we incorrectly think we've got to change the gospel so the corinthians came up with plans and i found this picture and i love these lips these are sugar-coated lips okay and so here's the thing let's camp around a better leader let's try some practical ways of presenting the gospel let's make the gospel not sound so foolish you go down we'll look later in chapter one the apostle paul says you know it's foolish this is foolish to the world and so the reaction is we got to understand the church by thought here is the corinthian church is saying look if we just make the gospel sound more plausible to people not the fact that a guy on a kill 2,000 years ago died and you have to come to the cross yourself. That's just so ugly and bloody and stuff like that. We've got to change the message. And today we see the church coming up with their own plans too. Let's use a significant speaker. And, and that's wrong if it's done with bad motives. You've got to understand. It's not wrong to bring a Professor Bookman in or a, a Rob Provost or someone like that. It, but if you're doing it only because you think that is what's going to change then those pro those are problems and then using canned speeches i went on the internet this week how to grow your church and you can buy all these messages and all these canned messages using a different way to present the gospel integrating human philosophy into the message using a watered down gospel all of these we're going to see are going to be things that are brought up out of out of the next few chapters in first corinthians but we must all remember god denounces the corinthian plan of human wisdom when paul uses the passage from isaiah 29 here it is for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever i will set aside you see that verse in context i'm hoping now you get it I'm hoping now you feel the power of it that the verse is given in the reality of the fact that God says I know you feel surrounded I know you feel hopeless Judah I recognize that you feel as if you're going to lose and from all human standpoint you are going to lose but I am telling you if you think that you can change you you can manipulate and not come through and show faith then you are going to be seeing your plans destroyed 
and your plans come to naught. Understand where power to change lives comes from and how we are to fight evil. God will not honor false methods, even if they have crowds. I believe there's a lot of churches that are incredibly crowded out today, but it's because they haven't brought the gospel in. And so what's going to happen is on Judgment Day, they're going to be not honored. We need to understand the gospel and where true change lives come from. God destroys the false plans. We must do God's business God's way, not with human wisdom. All right. There's my intro. <laughs> look, at, look at your sermon notes. Why being clever with the gospel is wrong. We're going to come back in two weeks and we'll hit this and I'll go into the details of the passage and I think even more so. I, I just want us to understand that we don't need to be manipulative with the gospel. Trust it. Trust the message. And if you don't see the results, it's not because you have to change the message. We must go to the fact that man's a sinner. Jesus is the only answer. He's God and man. He died on the cross. His resurrection proved the payment was accepted. And by faith alone, by faith alone only, will a person have eternal life. If God allows a thousand people to be in our church, great. If he only allows a hundred to be in our church, that's fine. But we must not change the method. We must not change the message either. We must trust him. And Israel, I'm telling you, again, I tell you, when you go back and you read 2 Kings and you read the book of Isaiah, I, I don't get some benchmarks so you don't get lost in it. And understand the power of verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. It's rooted in war and it gives us understanding to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you compact so much history into one verse. And I'm hoping, Lord, that I'm hoping that people aren't overwhelmed, that they just understand the big picture, whether it was Judah or whether it was Israel, that there were there was a lack of faith, a lack of trust in you. And I'm hoping we as a church can understand this too. And it, we learn from it. And we would be people that in our presentation of the gospel, in our going out to wage war against our culture, would trust in the gospel to change people. We thank you, God, that we have something that we know you will honor. And we ask God, we do want to see more people here. We do want to see people converted. We do want to do our part. Help us to stay committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ the way you want it presented. Whether it's foolish, moronic to the world, it is your message, and we'll stick to it. God, if there's anyone here today that's never given their life to Christ, never come to the cross, never thought that they needed to trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, May the scales come off their eyes, the blindness that they have come off their eyes and allow them to come to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because the reality of it is, is God, you are at war with all unbelievers and all unbelievers you will one day crush. And I hope all unbelievers would have a fear of you, God, a fear that they cannot win that war. And the only way to win with God is to be on his side. So I pray that they will convert and come to Christ and come to God's team.
God's army. In Jesus' name, amen.